Section forty seven of London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew. Volume one. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Street Folk, part forty seven. Of the Street Poets and Authors. Authorship for street sale is chiefly confined to the production of verse, which, whatever be its nature, is known through the trade as ballads two distinctions indeed are recognized ballads and ballads on a subject the last mentioned is as i have said and shown the publication which relates to any specific event national or local criminal or merely extraordinary true or false under the head ballads the street sellers class all that does not come under the description of ballads on a subject the same street authors now six in number compose indiscriminately any description of ballad, including the copy of the verses I have shown to be required as a necessary part of all histories or trials of criminals. When the printer has determined upon a sorrowful lamentation, he sends to a poet for a copy of verses, which is promptly supplied. The payment I have already mentioned, one shilling, but sometimes if the printer and publisher like the verses, he throws a penny or two over and sometimes also in the case of a great sale there is the same over sum fewer ballads i was assured than was the case ten or twelve years ago are now written expressly for street sale or street minstrelsy they come to the printer for nothing from the concert room he has only to buy a ross or a sharp songbooks for a penny and there's a lot of em so in course a publisher ain't a going to give a bob if he can be served for a farthing just by buying a song-book another man himself not a regular poet but a little concerned in street productions said to me with great earnestness now look at this sir and i hope you'll just say sir as i tell you you've given the public a deal of information about men like me and some of our chaps abuses you for it like mad but i say it's all right for it's all true now you'll have learned sir or anyway you will learn that there's songs sung in the streets and sometimes in some tap-rooms that isn't decent and relates to nothing but wickedness there wasn't a few of those songs once written for the streets straight away and a great sale they had i know but far better at country fairs and races than in town since the singing houses i don't mean where you pay to go to a concert no but such as your cider cellars and your night houses where there's lords and gentlemen and city swells and young men up from the colleges since these places have been up so flourishing there hasn't i do believe been one such song written by one of our poets they all come from the places where the lords and gentlemen and collegians is capital customers and they never was a worse sort of ballads than now in course those houses is licensed and particular respectable or it wouldn't be allowed and if i was to go to the foot of the bridge sir westminster bridge and chaunt any such songs and my mate should sell them why we should very soon be taking regular exercise on colonel chesterton's everlasting staircase we has a great respect for the law oh certainly parodies on any very popular song which used to be prepared expressly for street trade are now in like manner derived from the night-house or the concert-room but not entirely so the parody cab 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 which was heard in almost every street was originated in a concert room 
the ballads which have lately been written and published expressly for the street sale and have proved the most successful are parodies or imitations of the gay cavalier one street ballad commencing in the following words was i am told greatly admired both in the streets and the public houses twas a dark and foggy night and the moon gave no light and the stars were all put in the shade when leary joe scott dealt in donovan's hot said he'd go to court his fair maid i now give three stanzas of the way to live happy together a ballad said to have been written expressly for street sale its popularity is anything but discreditable to the street buyers from the time of this world's first formation you will find it has been the plan in every country and nation that woman was formed to please man and man for to love and protect them and shield them from the frowns of the world through the smooth paths of life to direct them and he who would do less is a churl then listen to me if you would live happy together as you steer through the troubles of life depend that this world's greatest treasure is a kind and a good-tempered wife some men will ill-use a good woman and say all they do turns out wrong but as i mean to offend no one you'll find faults to both sides belong but if both were to look at the bright side and each other's minds cease to pain they would find they have looked at the right side for all would be summer again then listen to me if you would live happy together and so on married women don't gossip or tattle remember it oft stirs up strife but attend to your soft children's soft prattle and the duties of mother and wife and men if you need recreation with selfish companions don't roam who might lead you to sad degradation but think of your comforts at home then listen to me if you would live happy together and so on it's all as one sir was the answer of a man whom i questioned on the subject it's the same poet and the same tip for any ballad no more nor a bob for nothing a large number of ballads which i procured and all sold and sung in the streets though not written expressly for the purpose presented a curious study enough they were of every class i specify a few to show the nature of the collection not including ballads on a subject ye banks and brays a bonny doon with on the same sheet the merry fiddler an indecent song there's a good time coming boys nicks my dolly the girls of blank sheer which of course is available for any county widow mahoney remember the glories of brian the brave clementina clemens lucy long erin gobra christmas in eighteen fifty the death of nelson the life and adventures of jemmy sweet the young may moon hail to the tyrrell he was sich a lushy cove and so on and so on i may here mention but a fuller notice may be necessary when i treat of street art that some of these ballads have an illustration always at the top of the column the heart that can feel for another is illustrated by a gaunt and savage-looking lion the amorous waterman of st john's wood presents a very short obese and bow-legged grocer in top-boots standing at his door while a lady in a huge bonnet is taking a sight at him to the evident satisfaction of a baked tater man rosin the bow is heralded by the rising sun 
the poachers has a cut of the royal exchange above the title the miller's ditty is illustrated by a perfect dandy of the slimmest and straightest fashion and when i was first breeched by an engraving of a highlander many of the ballads however have engravings appropriate enough of the experience of a street author or poet i have already mentioned the present number of street authors as i most frequently heard them styled though they write only verses i called upon one on the recommendation of a neighbouring tradesman of whom i made some inquiries he could not tell me the number of the house in the court where the man lived but said i had only to inquire for the tinker or the poet and any one would tell me i found the poor poet who bears a good character on a sick-bed he was suffering and had long been suffering from abscesses he was apparently about forty-five with the sunken eyes hollow cheeks and not pale but thick and rather sallow complexion which indicate ill health and scant food he spoke quietly and expressed resignation his room was not very small and was furnished in the way usual among the very poor but there were a few old pictures over the mantelpiece his eldest boy a lad of thirteen or fourteen was making dog chains at which he earned a shilling or two sometimes two shillings and sixpence by sale in the streets i was born at newcastle under line the man said but was brought to london when i believe i was only three months old i was very fond of reading poems in my youth as soon as i could read and understand almost yes very likely sir perhaps it was that put it into my head to write them afterwards i was taught wire-working and jobbing and was brought up to hawking wire-work in the streets and all over england and wales it was never a very good trade just a living many and many a weary mile we've travelled together i mean my wife and i have and we've sometimes been benighted and had to wander or rest about until morning it wasn't that we hadn't money to pay for a lodging but we couldn't get one we lost count of the days sometimes in wild parts but if we did lose count or thought we had i could always tell when it was sunday morning by the look of nature there was a mystery and a beauty about it as told me i was very fond of goldsmith's poetry always i can repeat edwin and emma now no sir i never read the vicar of wakefield i found edwin and emma in a book called the speaker i often thought of it in travelling through some parts of the country about fourteen years ago i tried to make a shilling or two by selling my verses i had written plenty before but made nothing by them indeed i never tried the first song i ever sold was to a concert-room manager the next i sold had great success it was called the demon of the sea and was to the tune of the brave old oak do i remember how it began yes sir i remember every word of it it began unfurl the sails we've easy gales and helmsmen steer aright hoist the grim death's head the pirate's head for a vessel heaves in sight that song was written for a concert-room but it was soon in the streets and ran a whole winter i got only a shilling for it then i wrote the pirate of the isles and other ballads of that sort the concert-rooms pay no better than the printers for the streets perhaps the best thing i ever wrote was the husband's dream i'm very sorry indeed that i can't offer you copies of some of my ballads but i haven't a single copy myself of any of them not one and i dare say i've written a thousand in my time 
and most of them were printed. I believe ten thousand were sold of the husband's dream. It begins, O oh, Dermot, you look healthy now. Your dress is neat and clean. I never see you drunk about. Then tell me where you've been. Your wife and family, are they well? You once did use them strange. Oh, are you kinder to them grown? How came this happy change? Then Dermot tells how he dreamed of his wife's sudden death and his children's misery as they cried about her dead body while he was drunk in bed, and as he calls out in his misery he wakes and finds his wife by his side. The ballad ends, I pressed her to my throbbing heart whilst joyous tears did stream, and ever since I've heaven blessed for sending me that dream. Dermot turned teetotaler. The teetotalers were very much pleased with that song. The printer once sent me five shillings on account of it. I have written all sorts of things, ballads on a subject, and copies of verses, and anything ordered of me, or on anything I thought would be accepted, but now I can't get about. I've been asked to write indecent songs, but I refused. One man offered me five shillings for six such songs. Why, that's less than the common price, said I instead of something over to pay for the wickedness. All those sort of songs come now to the streets, I believe all do, from the concert rooms. I can imitate any poetry. I don't recollect any poet I've imitated, no sir, not Scott or more, that I know of, but if they've written popular songs, then I dare say I have imitated them. Writing poetry is no comfort to me in my sickness. It might if I could write just what I please. The printers like hanging subjects best, and I don't. But when any of them sends to order a copy of verses for a sorrowful lamentation, of course I must supply them. I don't think much of what I've done that way. If I'd my own fancy, I'd keep writing acrostics, such as one I wrote on our rector. God bless him, interrupted the wife. He's a good man. That he is, said the poet, but he's never seen what I wrote about him, and perhaps never will. He then desired his wife to reach him his big Bible, and out of it he handed me a piece of paper with the following lines written on it, in a small neat hand enough. Celestial blessings hover round his head, hundreds of poor by his kindness were fed, and precepts taught which he himself obeyed, man, erring man, brought to the fold of God, preaching pardon through a Saviour's blood. No lukewarm priest, but firm to heaven's cause, Examples showed how much he loved its laws. Youth and age, he to their wants attends. Steward of Christ, the poor man's sterling friend. Reader's note. The first letter of each line combined gives the word champneys. End reader's note. There would be some comfort, sir, he continued, if one could go on writing at will like that. As it is, I sometimes write verses all over a slate and rub them out again. Live hard? Yes, indeed, we do live hard. I hardly know the taste of meat. We live on bread and butter and tea. No, not any fish. As you see, sir, I work at tinning. I put new bottoms into old tin teapots and such like. Here's my sort of bench, by my poor bit of a bed. In the best weeks I earn four shillings by tinning, never higher. In bad weeks I earn only one shilling by it, and sometimes not that and there are more shilling than four shilling weeks by three to one. As to my poetry, a good week is three shillings, and a poor week is one shilling, and sometimes I make nothing at all that way. 
so i leave you to judge sir whether we live hard for the comings in and what we have from the parish must keep six of us myself my wife and four children it's a long hard struggle yes indeed said the wife it's just as you've heard my husband tell sir we've two shillings a week and four loaves of bread from the parish and the rent's two shillings and sixpence and the landlord every week has two shillings and sixpence he has done for him in tinning work oh we do live hard indeed as i was taking my leave the poor man expressed a desire that i would take a copy of an epitaph which he had written for himself if ever he said i am rich enough to provide for a tombstone or my family is rich enough to give me one this shall be my epitaph note i copied it from a blank page in his bible stranger pause a moment stay tread lightly o'er this bound of clay here lies j blank h blank in hopes to rise and meet his saviour in the skies christ his refuge heaven his home where pain and sorrow never come his journey's done his troubles past with god he sleeps in peace at last of the street sellers of broadsheets the broadsheet known in street sale is an unfolded sheet varying in size and printed on one side the word is frequently used to signify an account of a murder or execution but it may contain an account of a fire an awful accident and great loss of life a series of conundrums as in those called nuts to crack a comic or intended comic engraving with a speech or some verses as recently in satire of the pope and cardinal wiseman note these are sometimes called comic exhibitions end note or a bill of the play the cocks are more frequently a smaller size than the broadsheet the sellers of these articles playbills excepted are of the class i have described as patterers the playbill sellers are very rarely patterers on other paperwork some of them are on the lookout during the day for a job in porterage or such like but they are not mixed up with any pattering and a regular patterer looks down upon a playbill seller as a poor creature fit for nothing but playbills i now proceed to describe such of these classes as have not been previously given of the gallows literature of the streets under this head i class all the street sold publications which relate to the hanging of malefactors that the question is not of any minor importance must be at once admitted when it is seen how very extensive a portion of the reading of the poor is supplied by the sorrowful lamentations and last dying speech confession and execution of criminals one paper worker told me that in some small and obscure villages in norfolk which he believed were visited only by himself in his line it was not very uncommon for two poor families to club for one penny to purchase an execution broadsheet not long after rush was hung he saw one evening after dark through the uncurtained cottage window eleven persons young and old gathered round a scanty fire which was made to blaze by being fed with a few sticks an old man was reading to an attentive audience a broadsheet of rush's execution which my informant had sold to him he read by the firelight for the very poor in those villages i was told rarely lighted a candle on a spring evening saying that a bit of fire was good enough to talk by 
the scene must have been impressive for it had evidently somewhat impressed the perhaps not very susceptible mind of my informant the procedure on the occasion of a good murder or of a murder expected to turn out well is systematic first appears a quarter sheet a handbill nine and a half inches by seven and a half inches containing the earliest report of the matter next come half sheets twice the size of later particulars or discoveries or if the supposed murderer be in custody of further examinations the sale of these bills is confined almost entirely to london and in their production the newspapers are for the most part followed closely enough then are produced the whole or broad sheets twice the size of the half sheets and lastly but only on great occasions the double broadsheet i have used the least technical terms that i might not puzzle the reader with accounts of crowns double crowns and so on the most important of all the broadsheets of executions according to concurrent and indeed unanimous testimony is the case of rush i speak of the testimony of the street folk concerned who all represent the sale of the papers relative to rush both in town and country as the best in their experience of late years the sheet bears the title of the sorrowful lamentations and last farewell of j b rush who is ordered for execution on saturday next at norwich castle there are three illustrations the largest represents rush cloaked and masked shooting mr jermy senior another is of rush shooting mrs jermy a prostrate body is at her feet and the lady herself is depicted as having a very small waist and great amplitude of gown skirts the third is a portrait of rush a correct copy i was assured and have no reason to question the assurance from one in the norwich mercury the account of the trial and biography of rush his conduct in prison and so on is a concise and clear enough condensation from the newspapers indeed rush's sorrowful lamentation is the best in all respects of any execution broadsheet i have seen even the copy of verses which according to the established custom the criminal composes in the condemned cell his being unable in some instances to read or write being no obstacle to the composition seems in a literary point of view of a superior strain to the run of such things the matters of fact however are introduced in the same peculiar manner the worst part is the morbid sympathy and intended apology for the criminal i give the verses entire this vain world i soon shall leave dear friends in sorrow do not grieve mourn not my end though tis severe for death awaits the murderer now in a dismal cell i lie for murder i'm condemned to die some may pity when they read oppression drove me to the deed my friends and home to me were dear the trees and flowers that blossomed near the sweet loved spot where youth began is dear to every englishman i once was happy that is past distress and crosses came at last false friendship smiled on wealth and me but shunned me in adversity the scaffold is awaiting me for jeremy i have murdered thee thy hope and joys thy son i slew thy wife and servant wounded too 
i think i hear the world to say o oh, rush why didst thou jeremy slay his dear loved son why didst thou kill for he had done to thee no ill if jeremy had but kindness shown and not have trod misfortune down i ne'er had fired the fatal ball that caused his son and him to fall my cause i did defend alone for learned counsel i had none i pleaded hard and questions gave in hopes my wretched life to save the witness to confound did try but god ordained that i should die eliza chesney she was there i'm sorry i have injured her o oh, emily sandford was it due that i should meet my death through you if you had wished me well indeed how could you thus against me plead i've used thee kind though not my wife your evidence has cost my life a child by me you have had born though hard against me you have sworn the scaffold is alas my doom i soon shall wither in the tomb god pardon me no mercies here for rush the wretched murderer although the execution broadsheet i have cited may be the best taken altogether which has fallen under my observation nearly all i have seen have one characteristic the facts can be plainly understood the narrative embracing trial biography and so on is usually prepared by the printer being a condensation from the accounts in the newspapers and is perhaps intelligible simply because it is a condensation it is so moreover in spite of bad grammar and sometimes perhaps from an unskilful connection of the different eras of the trial when the circumstances of the case permit or can be at all constrained to do so the last sorrowful lamentation contains a love letter written as one patterer told me he had occasionally expressed it when he thought his audience suitable from the depths of the condemned cell with the condemned pen ink and paper the style is stereotyped and usually after this fashion dear blank shrink not from receiving a letter from one who is condemned to die as a murderer here in my miserable cell i write to one whom i have from my first acquaintanceship held in the highest esteem and whom i believe has also had the same kindly feeling towards myself believe me i forgive all my enemies and bear no malice oh my dear blank guard against giving way to evil passions and a fondness for drink be warned by my sad and pitiful fate if it be not feasible to have a love-letter which can be addressed to either wife or sweetheart in the foregoing style a last letter is given and this can be written to father mother son daughter or friend and is usually to the following purport condemned cell blank my dear blank by the time you receive this my hours in this world will indeed be short it is an old and true saying that murderers will one day meet their proper reward no one can imagine the dreadful nights of anguish passed by me since the committal of the crime on poor blank all my previous victims have appeared before me in a thousand different shapes and forms my sufferings have been more than i can possibly describe let me entreat you to turn from your evil ways and lead a an honest and sober life i am suffering so much at the present moment both from mind and body that i can write no longer farewell farewell 
your affectionate blank i have hitherto spoken of the last sorrowful lamentation sheets the next broadsheet is the life trial confession and execution this presents the same matter as the lamentation except that a part perhaps the judge's charge at the trial or perhaps the biography is removed to make room for the execution and occasionally for a portion of the condemned sermon to judge by the productions i treat of both subjects are marvellously similar on all occasions i cite a specimen of the condemned sermon as preached according to the broadsheet before hewson condemned for the murder of a turnkey it will be seen that it is of a character to fit any condemned sermon whatever the reverend gent then turned his discourse particularly to the unhappy prisoner doomed to die on the morrow and told him to call on him who alone had the power of forgiveness who had said though his sins were red as scarlet he would make them white as snow though he had been guilty of many heinous crimes there was yet an opportunity of forgiveness during the delivery of this address the prisoner was in a very desponding state and at its conclusion was helped out of the chapel by the turnkeys the execution is detailed generally in this manner i cite the life trial confession and execution of mary may for the murder of w constable her half-brother by poison at wicks near manningtree at an early hour this morning the space before the prison was very much crowded by persons anxious to witness the execution of mary may for the murder of william constable her half-brother by poison at wicks manningtree which gradually increased to such a degree that a great number of persons suffered extremely from the pressure and gladly gave up their places on the first opportunity to escape from the crowd the sheriffs and their attendants arrived at the prison early this morning and proceeded to the condemned cell where they found the reverend ordinary engaged in prayer with the miserable woman after the usual formalities had been observed of demanding the body of the prisoner into their custody she was then conducted to the press-room the executioner with his assistants then commenced pinioning her arms which operation they skilfully and quickly dispatched during these awful preparations the unhappy woman appeared mentally to suffer severely but uttered not a word when the hour arrived and all the arrangements having been completed the bell commenced tolling and then a change was observed to come over the face of the prisoner who trembling violently walked with the melancholy procession preceded by the reverend ordinary who read aloud the funeral service for the dead when the bell commenced tolling a moment was heard from without and the words hats off and silence were distinctly heard from which time nothing but a continual sobbing was heard on arriving at the foot of the steps leading to the scaffold she thanked the sheriffs and the worthy governor of the prison for their kind attentions to her during her confinement and then the unfortunate woman was seen on the scaffold there was a death-like silence prevailed among the vast multitude of people assembled in a few seconds the bolt was drawn and after a few convulsive struggles the unhappy woman ceased to exist i cannot refrain from calling the reader's attention to the copy of verses touching mary may i give them entire for they seem to me to contain all the elements which made the old ballads popular the rushing at once into the subject and the homely reflections though 
crude to all educated persons are nevertheless well adapted to enlist the sympathy and appreciation of the class of hearers to whom they are addressed copy of verses the solemn bell for me doth toll and i am doomed to die for murdering my brother dear upon a tree so high for gain i did premeditate my brother for to slay oh think upon the dreadful fate of wretched mary may chorus behold the fate of mary may who did for gain her brother slay in essex boundary i did dwell my brother lived with me in a little village called wicks not far from manningtree in a burial club i entered him on purpose him to slay and to obtain the burial fees i took his life away one eve he to his home returned not thinking he was doomed to be sent by a sister's hand unto the silent tomb his tea for him i did prepare and in it poison placed to which i did administer how dreadful was his case before he long the poison took in agony he cried upon him i in scorn did look at length my brother died then to the grave i hurried him and got him out of sight but god ordained this cruel deed should soon be brought to light i strove the money to obtain for which i did him slay by which also suspicion fell on guilty mary may the poison was discovered which caused me to bewail and i my trial to await was sent to chelmsford jail and for this most atrocious deed i at the bar was placed the jury found me guilty how dreadful was my case the judge the dreadful sentence passed and solemn said to me you must return from whence you came and thence unto the tree on earth i can no longer dwell there's nothing can me save hark i hear the mournful knell which calls me to the grave death appears in ghostly forms to summon me below see the fatal bolt is drawn and mary may must go good people all of each degree before it is too late see me on the fatal tree and pity my sad fate my guilty heart stung with grief with agony and pain my tender brother i did slay that fatal day for gain this mode of procedure in gallows literature and this style of composition have prevailed for from twenty to thirty years i find my usual impossibility to fix a date among these streets folk but the sorrowful lamentation sheet was unknown until the law for prolonging the term of existence between the trial and death of the capitally convicted was passed before that sir i was told there wasn't no time for a lamentation sentence of friday and scragging on monday so we had only the life trial and execution before the year eighteen twenty the execution broadsheets and so on were got up in about the same though certainly in an inferior and more slovenly manner than at present and one copy of verses often did service for the canticles of all criminals condemned to be hung these verses were to sacred or psalm tunes such as job or the old hundredth i was told by an aged gentleman that he remembered about the year eighteen twelve hearing a song or as he called it stave of this description not only given in the street with fiddle and nasal twang to the tune of the old hundredth 
but commencing in the very words of sternhold and hopkins all people that on earth do dwell these death verses as they were sometimes called were very frequently sung by blind people and in some parts of the country blind men and women still sing generally to the accompaniment of a fiddle the copy of verses a london chaunter told me that a few years back he heard a blind man at york announce the verses as from the solitudes of the condemned cell at present the broadsheet sellers usually sing or chaunt the copy of verses an intelligent man now himself a street trader told me that one of the latest execution songs as he called them which he remembered to have heard in the old style but no doubt there were plenty after that as like one another as peas in a boiling was on the murder of weir at elstree in hertfordshire he took great interest in such things when a boy and had the song in question by heart but could only depend upon his memory for the first and second verses come all good christians praise the lord and trust to him in hope god in his mercy jack thurtle sent to hang from hartford gallows rope poor weir's murder the lord disclosed be glory to his name and thurtle hunt and probert too were brought to grief and shame another street paper worker whom i spoke to on the subject and to whom i read these two verses said that's just the old thing sir and it's quite in old jemmy catnatch's style for he used to write worses anyhow he said he did for i've heard him say so and i've no doubt he did in reality it was just his favourite style i know but the march of intellect put it out it did so in the most popular murders the street papers are a mere recital from the newspapers but somewhat more brief when the suspected murderer is in custody but when the murderer has not been apprehended or is unknown then said one death hunter we has our fling and i've hit the mark a few chances that way we had at the very least half a dozen coves pulled up in the slums that we printed for the murder of the beautiful eliza grimwood in the waterloo road i did best on thomas hopkins being the guilty man i think he was thomas hopkins cause a strong case was made out again him i received similar accounts of the street doings in the case of mysterious murders as those perpetrations are called by the paper workers when the criminal has escaped or was unknown among those leaving considerable scope to the patterer's powers of invention were the murders of mr westwood a watchmaker in princes street leicester square of eliza davis a barmaid in frederick street hampstead road and of the policeman in dagenham essex one of the most successful cocks relating to murders which actually occurred was the confession to the reverend mr cox chaplain of aylesbury jail of john tarwell the quaker i had some conversation with one of the authors of this confession for it was got up by three patterers and he assured me that it did well and the facts was soon in some of the newspapers as what we originates often is this sham confession was as follows the reverend mr cox the chaplain of aylesbury jail having been taken ill and finding his end approaching sent for his son and said take this confession now i am as good as my word i promised that unhappy man john torwell that while i lived his confession should not be made public owing to the excited state of the public mind torwell confessed to me 
that besides the murder of sarah hart at salt hill for which he suffered the last penalty of the law at aylesbury he was guilty of two other barbarous murders while abroad as a transport in van diemen's land one of these barbarous and horrid murders was on the body of one of the keepers he knocked him down with the keys which he wrenched from him and then cut his throat with his own knife leaving the body locked up in his cell and before that to have the better opportunity of having the turnkey single-handed john torwell feigned illness he then locked the keeper in the cell and went to a young woman in the town a beautiful innkeeper's daughter whom he had seduced as he worked for her father as he had the privilege of doing in the daytimes he went to her and she seeing him in a flurried state with blood upon his hand questioned him he told the unhappy young woman how he had killed the keeper for the love of her and the best thing to be done was for her to get possession of all the money she could and escape with him to this country where he would marry her and support her like a lady the unhappy young woman felt so terrified that at the moment she was unable to say yes or no he became alarmed for his safety and with the identical knife that he killed the keeper with he left his unhappy victim a weltering in her gore he then fled from the house unobserved and went into the bush where he met three men who had escaped through his killing the keeper he advised them to go down with him to an english vessel lying off the coast when they reached the shore they met a crew in search of fresh water to them they made out a pitiful story and were taken on board the ship all being young men and the captain being short of hands and one of them having been really a seaman transported for mutiny the captain after putting questions which the seaman answered engaged them to work their passage home torwell was the captain of the gang and was most looked up to they worked their passage home behaving well during the voyage so that the captain said he would make each of them a present and never divulge when they reached liverpool torwell robbed the captain's cabin of all the money contained in it which was a very considerable sum after that he left liverpool and adopted the garb of a quaker in which he could not easily be recognized and then pursued the course of wickedness and crime which led him to a shameful death the confession of rush to the chaplain of norwich castle was another production which was remunerative to the patterers there was soon a bit of it in the newspapers said one man for us and them treads close on one another's heels the newspapers screeved about rush and his mother and his wife but we in our patter made him confess to having murdered his old grandmother fourteen years back and how he buried her under the apple tree in the garden and how he murdered his wife as well these ulterior confessions are very rarely introduced in lieu of some matter displaced into the broadsheet but form separate bills it was necessary to mention them here however and so preserve the sequence of the whole of the traffic consequent upon a conviction for murder in this curious trade sometimes the trial and so on form also separate bills as well as being embodied afterwards in the sorrowful lamentations this is only however in cases which are deemed important one of the papers i obtained for instance is the trial of mr and mrs manning for the murder of mr patrick o'connor the trial alone occupies a broadsheet it is fairly got up a portrait of mr patrick o'connor heads the middle column from the presence of a fur collar to the coat or cloak and of what is evidently an order with its insignia round the neck i have little doubt that the portrait of mr o'connor was originally that of the sovereign 
in whose service O'Connor was once an excise officer, King William the Fourth. The last publication to which the trade has recourse is The Book. This is usually eight pages, but sometimes only four of a larger size. In authorship, matter, or compilation, it differs little from the narratives I have described. The majority of these books are prepared by one man. They are in a better form for being preserved as a record than is a broadsheet, and are frequently sold, and almost always offered by the patterers when they cry a new case on a sheet, as people that love such reading likes to keep a good account of the best by them, and so when I've sold Manning's bills, I've often shoved off Rush's books. The books, like the bills, have generally the letters and the copy of verses. Some of these books have the title page set forth in full display, for example, Horrible Murder and Mutilation of Lucy Game, aged fifteen, by her cruel brother William Game, aged nine, at West Mill, Hertfordshire, his committal and confession, with a copy of letter, also full particulars of the poisonings in Essex. Here, as there was no execution, the matter was extended to include the poisonings in Essex. The title I have quoted is expanded into thirteen lines. Sometimes the title page is adorned with a portrait. One, I was told, which was last employed as a portrait of Calcraft, had done severe service since Courvoisier's time, for my informant thought that Courvoisier was the original. It is the bust of an ill-looking man with coat and waistcoat fitting with that unwrinkled closeness which characterizes the figures in Taylor's fashions. The above style of work is known in the trade as the book, but other publications in the book or pamphlet form are common enough. In some I have seen, the title page is a history in little. I cite one of these. Founded on facts, the Whitby tragedy, or the gambler's fate, containing the lives of Joseph Carr, aged twenty-one, and his sweetheart, Maria Leslie, aged nineteen, who were found dead lying by each other on the morning of the twenty-third of May. Maria was on her road to town to buy some ribbons and so on for her wedding day, when her lover, in a state of intoxication, fired at her, and then ran to rob his prey, but finding it to be his sweetheart, reloaded his gun, placed the muzzle to his mouth, and blew out his brains, all through cursed cards, drink, and so on, also an affectionate copy of verses. To show the extent of the trade in execution broadsheets, I obtained returns of the number of copies relating to the principal executions of late that had been sold. Of Rush, 2,500,000 copies. Of the Mannings, 2,500,000 copies. Of Courvoisier, 1,666,000 copies. Of Good, 1,650,000 copies. Of Corder, 1,650,000 copies of Greenacre, 1,666,000 copies. Of Thurtell I could obtain no accounts. It was so long ago, but the sale, I was told, was enormous. Reckoning that each copy was sold for one penny, the regular price in the country, where the great sale is, the money expended for such things amounts to upwards of 48,500 pounds in the case of the six murderers above given. All this number was printed and got up in London. A few broadsheets concerning Rush were printed also in Norwich. Touching the issue of Cox, 
a person connected with the trade calculated for me from data at his command that three thousand four hundred and fifty six copies were struck off weekly and sold in the streets in the metropolis and reckoning them at only a halfpenny each we had the sum of seven pounds four shillings spent every week in this manner at this rate there must be one hundred and seventy nine thousand seven hundred and twelve copies of cocks printed in a year on which the public expend no less than three hundred and seventy four pounds eight shillings of the style of illustrations usually accompanying this class of street literature the two large engravings here given are fac-similes while the smaller ones are faithful copies of the average embellishments to the halfpenny ballads on another occasion i shall speak at length on street art end of section forty seven